At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. At that time, I, you know, I started questioning it because there was another Dan Black, a kid out of Purdue, who I actually ended up playing spring training with at the Marlins. And my sophomore year, in whatever round, Dan Black pops up. And I, you know, and like my heart drops and I'm like, oh my God, like this just happened. I'm watching the computer and texts start flying in. And then I look at it and it's like Purdue, first baseman, 234 pounds. And I was like, yeah, that's not me. Welcome into another episode of Baseball America's From Phenom to the Farm. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today's episode is with Danny Black, former second baseman in the Marlin system and a current coach in the organization. Baseball is fun because it's it's a very good example of the six degrees of separation thing. If you, if you play it or you know people who play, it's very easy to link up and find people that you have commonalities with. And Danny is a guy who I feel like I've known forever. I played with a bunch of his junior college teammates during my time in college and always heard stories about what a great baseball mind he was. So I was very pleased to have him on the show to talk through his career story. Danny went from a guy who was pretty ready to give up baseball as a senior in high school to a junior college All-American, then a starter at the University of Oklahoma on a College World Series team, to a guy who got all the way up to AAA in the Marlins organization. Really a a great story about perseverance in baseball, believing in yourself, and also learning the value of, of team chemistry and, and staying within yourself as a team and, and how those bonds are made. It was one of my favorite interviews. Danny, you know, like his teammates said he would be, was a great guy to chop it up with, had some great stories. Um, we, t- we talked, one thing that I, I think everyone will be interested in, we talked about what that difference is between the guys like the Christian Yelichs and the JT Real Mutos, the guys that, that Danny played with in the minor leagues, and just other professional baseball players. Kind of a really interesting look at that. So hope everyone enjoys the episode. Uh, episodes are from Phenom the Farm Drop every other Tuesday. If you enjoyed this one, subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and go check out past interviews. And if you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA Podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. We are almost to the college baseball postseason, my favorite time of the year, um, which you'll see in this episode. We talk a lot of junior college baseball, a lot of uh, Division One baseball, a lot of College World Series stuff. Uh, the prospect hot sheet is going, draft coverage is heating up, and BA is covering all on the site, the main podcast feed, and great stuff on the other podcast feature projection and the 90th percentile. With that, let's talk to Danny Black. All right, joining in for today's episode from Phenom to the Farm, he was a 14th round pick of the Marlins in the 2010 draft out of the University of Oklahoma, is infielder Danny Black. Danny, thanks so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. No, happy to be here. Appreciate you having me on. I've been looking forward to this. I feel like I've known you forever because we have so many like former teammates in common, heard so much about you, but it's great to get you on the show. Before we jump into your career story in general, let's let's talk about the present. Um, you're coaching in what I believe is now the GCL again. Um, in, in, you know, for in the, you know, with the Marlins. And I, I just kind of want to touch on a little bit what your life is like, what the responsibility of a coach is like 
in the GCL because now since there is no more short season stepping stone, it's you're not it's not only just like baseball stuff. It's these guys have to be ready for life in full season ball following following the GCL, following just playing in the complex on the clover field. So what is you know, what is your day to day? What are you trying to impart on these guys to, you know, advice to get them ready for not only the the baseball in in what is now class a but just living outside the complex you know it's it's the first time i've actually experienced this level you know i came straight from college and went into short season right after the draft and after college and then rolled into straight full season baseball so i never came down to the GCL or how to deal with it. So this is my first time as a coach and I've kind of been soaking it all in and learning it myself, but it's definitely, it's eye opening in the sense of just the culture of where these kids are at in their lives. And it's also a lot of fun. I mean, it's really cool experiencing what these kids know and who they are and kind of getting them at such a young age that I wasn't used to in pro ball. You know, I was barely around it as a player, let alone as a coach. And a lot of it is just, you know, it's organizing their day. It's organizing their emotions. It's, it's preparing them, you know, like you said, it's not even sometimes on the baseball field, it's preparing them to survive life. A lot of these kids, whether it's even high school or coming across from the Dominican Venezuela or wherever they're at, they're just not used to being on their own or having to control their own schedule without somebody being there to help them. And the biggest step for them is learning how to organize their day and learning how to, you know, control their outside life with their professional life and with also just growing up, you know, here, here in the United States, we had time to grow up and some of these Dominican kids and whatever, their whole life's been baseball. So they've never grown up and they come over here and they're figuring that out. Yeah, it's an interesting aspect, and especially that the the next step for them is you know at 120 game full season, um, or you know what whatever it is in Class A now. There's no you know you can't go do 60 games in the Appy League as a as a taster. So, uh, but let let's bring it back to you. Let's talk about you and your your amateur days, uh, your upbringing. When did you first realize that you had a future in baseball at the next level, whether that be college or professionally? You know, it was in junior college. Um, you know, I. Grew up coming up in Little League, was good at baseball, all-star teams. But looking back, you know, that was great and all. But when I rolled through high school, I was undersized and underdeveloped. So it took me, I was a late bloomer, and it took me almost into my sophomore year of junior college to when all of a sudden a couple scouts started handing me their information. And I was like, all right, this is interesting. So in high school, what kept you, what kept you in baseball then? What gave you the confidence to say, I'm going to go, go play junior college? You know, it's kind of funny because I've always loved the game and it's not just succeeding at the game. It's the game itself. You know, we grew up playing wiffle ball in the yard, trying to cover everybody's stances and trying to run situations and do that. And coming up to high school, I was, I understood the game and had some talent, but all of a sudden I was through the growing pains of puberty and trying to figure my way as to growing into a man and all of that. And after my senior year, I almost stopped playing. It just kind of, 
didn't have a really good year. It kind of wasn't as fun to me anymore. I mean, I knew I still loved the game, but it just like the fun part of it had started to wear off, which bothered me a lot because it, I couldn't understand that feeling that I was having. And then I rolled into summer ball just to keep playing. And I kind of set up with another junior college that told me I can come out because I make the routine play at second, which looking back is, is a compliment, but not really, <laughs> you know, not really what you're looking for going into a college program. It's not the most inspiring yeah. uh, recruiting pitch. Yeah. Like, Oh, that. you know, they really believe in me because I can catch a ball and throw it from second base. But, um, I started playing summer ball and met a good buddy of ours that you've played with Ryan Giacomini and his family. And his dad was, his dad was the coach of that. And Oh my, Oh my God. <laughs> you played for Mark. Yes. It was, it was, it was a beauty. It was a great, beautiful situation, but listen, no one loves the game more than Mark Giacomini. Yes. And no one will let you know that more than Mark Giacomini. That's the truth. Um, but I started playing summer ball with them and just had a blast. Absolutely, you know, whether it's refound the love of the game or just was playing the game and enjoying it. And Ryan and Mark convinced me to come take a trip up to Feather River where I ended up going. And that kind of started the ball rolling. So you, I mean, you end up as a guy who, is a, you know, a stellar junior college player. You make it all the way up to AAA and pro ball. What, what were the present tools? What, what about you as a high schooler? Are there things that you look back in retrospect and say, you know, th these were things that I just needed to develop more, but I had these present tools or I had this kind of skill set or mental skill set that that developed like is there something if you were scouting your 18 year old self with like this this and this is why this kid ended up having success or is it just were you just a straight up late bloomer when it came to everything uh you know I was talented as a kid you know as far as hitting I had a more of a naturally a, a good swing and looking back I still you know could use my hands and understand how to manipulate my hands which in hitting is massive um, I was fast as a kid, then went through that, you know, baby deer goofy phase where I was okay. And then in junior college, when I started working out and lifting seriously, it's the speed all of a sudden came back. Um, had a good arm as a kid, also the growing pains of going through high school. It just kind of like, it was there as when I was young and then going through high school, I was growing into my body and it just wasn't there. But the knowledge of the game, the way, you know, I've always played the game by understanding the game and trying to play the game within the game. That's why I love it. And that's why I'm still in it. Um, but then my, you know, physically it was there and then growing through it. And then it kind of, you know, as I started working out and becoming a man, it came back, which the tools all of a sudden, you know, in the professional ball speaking, the tools started showing up. We talked a little bit about this off mic, but I was um, I was doing my research for the interview. You gave it you gave a little kind of like a little interview when you when you got to Oklahoma um, and, and a thing you mentioned was the thing that that shaped your life the, the most was your sister passing away. And um, it, it's it's something we, we've had some other guys deal with similar things on the show, but just without diving, you know, going all in on, on this moment, where does where does baseball where does a game fit into your life after a tragedy like that or while you're going through something like that? 
You know, it was the uh, the out from the emotions at times for me. It was something I loved to do, and it was something that I could try to forget about, you know, for the moment, get out of that that feeling. Because, I mean, I spent a lot of time being angry after that. Uh, there was just a lot of emotions and feelings that I couldn't process or wasn't ready to or didn't want to. And so I was angry at life for a long time. But when I was on the baseball field, it was simple. It was play the game. It was go. And baseball was that kind of that out. That was just that release that was like, I can just go do something I love. And then, you know, and it also gave me a purpose. It was, you know, respecting what she had brought to the world and what she meant to me and playing for her along with my family and whatever. And it was a driving force that kind of helped push me to not make excuses or not, you know, feel sorry about things, you know, the old get mad, don't get sad about things and I'll, you know, put things into perspective as far as on the baseball field. So you graduate high school, uh, you, you know, you play summer ball, decided to give, uh, give junior college a try, give, give feather river college a try. Can you describe Quincy, California to someone who has not been there? So I come from Northern California, Sacramento, the, you know, the Valley. And when Ryan and his dad were like, yeah, why don't you come up and check out our junior college? And I was like, all right, where's it at? And they're like, well, it's called feather river. And I was like, yeah, I've never heard of it. I mean, it's two and a half, three hours from my house. And I go, where's that? And they're like, it's in Quincy. And I was like, yeah, I'm still not practicing what that even means. And you end up going up towards Tahoe. And then, you know, you roll between Chico and Tahoe. And it's at this, like, I think it's like 3,500 feet. It's just this little valley. And it's this small town in a valley with the mountains around you. And it's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, there's nothing else there but the college and a little bit of the town. But it was gorgeous. And the first time I rolled up was to work out with the head coach at the time, Terry Baumgartner, who he's still there and he's one of the best, but we roll up there to the mountains. It's me and Ryan, his dad, and my parents and bomber. And he's hit me ground balls at short. And I throw probably eight out of 15 over Ryan's head off their clubhouse so you don't you don't think bomb was was hitting these ground balls and thinking I found my next all American? I mean, I just I just was airmailing him, and I'm trying to throw it harder and make it like somehow magically hit him in the chest. And it just I've airmailed him half the time. We go into the cage. I hit like two, three rounds of five or six balls, and he's like, "All right," and like walks out. And I'm like, "Well, this is great." I'm like, "Thanks for having me up here, Ryan. Like, this is great." And then we sit down at lunch um, and you sit with my parents and his kids are there and his kids are climbing all over us and we're having fun or whatever. And he's like, Oh no, he's like, we want them. And I was kind of just like, it's like set me back. I was like, you just saw that happen. And he's like, yeah, we want them. Like they'll probably be on the left side of the infield for us. Like, yeah, please. And I was just like, you know, it was like weird because it was, it wasn't one of those moments where you're like, Oh, nailed it. I just went out for my baseball interview and just nailed it. I just, you know, striped it. I was like, I was just like, Ooh, that was oof. And then to feel like to feel that kind of moment was like, all right, well, what's this all about? 
Well, talk to me about that first junior college fall because JUCO, you go right into the fire. You guys play a ton of baseball in the fall. It's not like that four-year fall where it's just scrimmages and, and practices and weights and stuff like that. Um, you know, everyone's kind of different. You're, you're away from home for the first time. You're trying to f- just figure out who you are as a, as a human being, as a person being away from your parents for the first time. How did you respond to junior college to that first Juco fall? You know, it was, it was a bit of a learning experience as far as learning, you know, to really cook for yourself outside of mac and cheese and the usual, but I mean, oh, it was, I it cringe was, at, at my cooking skills yeah. as a 18, 19 year old. As Ryan like, would say, the horrible. staple in our house was cheesy butter noodles. Oh, Ryan, Ryan was the, the person who taught me that you, there's no such thing as too much butter in your mac and cheese. He is the absolute inventor of more butter, less milk equals better <laughs> mac and cheese. And I still swear by it and tell my children who aren't even ready to cook it, but they're going to know. Yeah. Um, yeah. That. It's the truth. But yeah, Juco to me was, it was a grind and a blast at the same time because I was, a, I was a good student in high school. Like I was smart. I was looking, you know, my thoughts were I was going to follow engineering, which my grandpa did and do all that. And so when I rolled into Feather River, the class selection was, a, was a little limited as far as engineering goes. And I mean, as you know, baseball and avenues like that don't necessarily co- coexist very well. I also just want to clarify for the listener that uh, the I've seen the school building at Feather River and it was absolutely smaller than my high school. Oh, the, the, the best thing that we said is the dorms are on this side of the mountain and the school's on the same side of the mountain. And we literally, you have to go down from the dorms to go back to school. So it's snow in the winter. I literally walked uphill to and from school in junior college and it was like a running joke amongst us. And this hill going up to school was no joke. I don't care what shape you're in. Walking up that hill, you were winded no matter what. It was unbelievable. But it was like, so school there, we got into the classes. And school came easy to me because I was taking a few classes that I was already had kind of taken in high school, you know, to get the credits. And it was like I was prepared educationally for those to just handle those. And it wasn't that big of a deal, but baseball practice was like four or five hours long at times. There was no rules. We were out there all day, just working. And there was a beauty to it, but there was like a, a learning curve to like, this is a grind. You need to, you know, you're going to be going after it all day for all, you know, this is what you're here for and doing that. And we had a young team, um, Bomber just the other Reed Peters went down to Delta. He had just left and took another school. So he took a bunch of players and we had, I mean, we were mostly freshmen. I think Ryan and about six others were the only returning guys on our entire club. And the rest of our club was a bunch of freshmen out of Reno or some out of California, Oregon. And so they had their hands full trying to put us together and teach us what was going on. And it was a straight competition on in every position everywhere, which was a, you know, looking back was a huge part of my, my career in life and kind of where it played out. Something that I think I've had a million conversations about with people and like with a lot of your former teammates, especially about the, the team you had your sophomore years is like, what, what builds team chemistry? And like it, some people there's really no secret sauce but like how do you create it do you have to get lucky is it about recruiting and like 
as someone who who played on a team that I know a lot of you guys are still like thick as thieves, um, you know, really close like that. What it you know what's the what's the the Danny Black definition of like what builds team chemistry? Time together, you know, failure, success. Like you have to spend the time together and you have to get through it like you're a family. Quincy was the best part about Quincy was that there was nothing to do there except hang out with each other. Good, bad, and different. You learned how to hang out with each other. You know, whether we're out playing games or video games or going camping or, you know, going out and partying like we weren't supposed to, you know, and sneaking it or doing whatever we had to do. But like, I remember like there was a moment my freshman year where we were young and we were talented. We played in the fall and we went and played some, you know, UNR and we played some, what there's schools in Reno that were supposed to be the really good schools. And we were, we held up with them for quite a while and should have beat them. And it was like kind of one of those building like, Hey, we can do this. And then we roll into the first year, our freshman year, and we're like four and 13 through spring ball. I mean, you know, you can make the excuses that there was eight inches of snow on our field. We shoveled all half the snow out there and, and then it snowed another two feet on there and we were just hitting in cages. But the, the one moment I think that changed us was we'd been in a lot of games and then lost late and made mistakes. And we were down in actually down in my, my hometown area with Sierra College. And we just gave them a game. We were going to, we were beating them and then we gave it to them based on, you know, young mistakes. And it was the first time I saw Bomber made you feel like he, he made us feel embarrassed because he just sat there and was like, you guys are like, you guys are just a joke. Like what I just saw out there was a joke. And he was, he's not the guy that like drops that on you. We went the whole fall with him being, intense but fair and cool and like when he dropped out it was like everybody just it shook us and then we had this three-hour bus ride home and right when we pull into our field that you know i don't know it was like one in the morning he stops on the bus and gets off and he's like you guys are gonna be he's like you guys are a very good baseball team and you're gonna roll through this league and you are gonna dominate everybody you guys need to understand you're that good and understand that what just happened down there won't happen again. And it was kind of one of those, like, you know, you just feel like embarrassed. And then all of a sudden he started to build you up and then he followed it up by there's three feet of snow on the cages. You guys need to get out there and knock those all off before the morning. So see ya, (laughs) you know, so it was like a bit of bomber humor got mixed into it, but we ended up rolling. I think we were like 24 and one going through league and then rolling into playoffs um, going into our sophomore year, it was this very similar team and we had experienced all of it together. We had gone through that ups and downs and we knew each other. So our sophomore year, everybody was like on the same page and also ready to be leaders amongst each other. We weren't all passive and trying to find our place. Everybody had a place and was ready to kind of make that next move. Heading into the spring of your sophomore year, a year and a half in college is an absolute eternity. Where you as a ball player, 
and you as and you as a person, what were the differences? Like, what had that year and a half so far in junior college done to you as a ball player, you as a person, versus when you graduated high school? It was the self sufficiency. It was the confidence. You know, I. It helped that I started becoming a man. You know, just that feeling of like you feel like you're getting stronger. You're accomplishing things. You're surviving on your by yourself. You have a close knit group of people that you can trust. You have a, the coaching staff that you trust and that, you know, believes in you and also, you know, holds you accountable. So it was, it was just kind of feeling like, I don't know. It felt like it was, it, it was a really comforting feeling to know that you were where you wanted to be, but you like, you wanted to climb and keep going but you had that comfort of, you know, like a family was there to help you. When you first roll into college, you kind of feel like you're on your own and just rolling through, figuring it out. And then by that, you know, three semesters in and we're rolling into this season and we feel good about our team. We know, you know, we're, we know we're getting out there and ready to go, you know, dominate some people and you have a family behind you, whether you fail or not, you're just ready to roll. And people like that's system or structure behind you is there you're at that point i'd assume starting to get some interest from i mean because you're you're about to finish your sophomore year you got to find something else to do you got to find somewhere else to go what is recruiting like the second time around when you're you're putting up these kind of numbers in junior college uh you know it was that was another interesting moment that just kind of surprised me and you know i rolled through my freshman year and had a really good year and came back ready to stay like ready to do more because we lost in the super regionals and I wasn't happy about how that happened. And just was, we had the same group and it was like, we're just going to get better and we're going to go out and prove to everybody, you know? So there was that like drive. And then one day I get called into bomber's office and he just kind of puts a piece of paper in front of me and was like, these schools want you to come visit because they want you to go there. And I was like, I just kind of sat back and was, looking at these schools and was like, what do you mean? And he's like, yeah, they want you to like come. And I was like, I mean, I was looking at some schools. There was Oregon, Oregon state, you know, the West coast schools that I was grew up around. And then there was some Lewis in college and there was Oklahoma and there was, and I was like, Oklahoma, you know, I was looked at a couple, like, how do they even know who I am? Like I get maybe the Oregon state, you know, or Reno or, whatever, because they're right here, you know, UNLV, they're, you know, we're in their backyard. And he's like, yeah, I guess when you were out playing, you know, one of our fall games, the Oklahoma coach was watching another kid and saw you. So they want you to go on a visit. And I was like, all right, you know, and that was another experience was trying to figure out what a visit meant. You know, I mean, that just wasn't, it wasn't how my high school was. I wasn't around too, you know, too many people that were doing that kind of experience. So I wasn't prepared for it, but I was just asking him. So walk me through that visit. What's that process? So the first visit I went to Oregon and they were just putting their program back together. So they didn't even have a field. They had their school and campus. And I mean, that was its own ungodly setup of how they treat athletes in the way that it is. And it was just special on that, but they were working out, I think at a, you know, high school or junior college field every day. And, and I went to that, went to a football game, 
saw the experience and was like, well, this place is pretty cool. And, you know, you've watched them on TV. You've heard about Oregon. It's, it's Oregon. And, and then the next trip I went to Santa Clara and saw that place and didn't go to it. They didn't have football there, went and saw the program, but it was, you know, still at a time where they were just kind of practicing and enjoyed that for what it was. It was closer to home. I had some family ties a little closer there. So I was like, all right, you know, this might have be an option. And then I went to Oklahoma and I went out there and the first thing we did was had a little dinner. And then I roll back with um, one of the players. He's like, Hey, just come meet my neighbor. And I'm like, all right. I roll in there and meet a couple guys, a couple guys on the basketball team. And all of a sudden this man child amongst humans walks down the hallway. It's like Blake Griffin. And he's like, Hey Blake. And I'm like, yeah, I know. You know, I'm like, daddy, and, you know, and he's hanging out. He's like, we got two days tomorrow. You want a beer? And I was like, absolutely. And so like the first experience was like, Jesus. It's like, now I'm at this program where like, I'm watching these dudes on TV and like Blake Griffin's, you know, lining up to be one, one in the draft. And he's just, and he's the coolest dude ever. And then the next day we roll out to a football game. And I think that was kind of the moment that changed me there. You know, the facility, the program, coach Tadlock, who's now at, um, Texas Tech. Tech. Yeah, the head coach at Tech. He was the one recruiting me, and I loved him. I absolutely love him. And I was all in on who he was just by how he treated me. But I went into that football game and saw something I never saw before. It was just a unbelievable experience. What's the pitch when Tad like when Tadlock's telling you this is why you, you know, this is why you need to come here? What is, you know, what, what is he laying out? Why does he, cause I mean, they're at, they're asking you to come a long way from home. Um, and, and to a school that just a little bit bigger than, than Feather River. Just a little bigger, you know, I think Norman's campus might cover more than Quincy actually is, but <laughs> that, that wouldn't surprise me whatsoever. But I just like how he talked about the game. He brought up what he liked about how I played, where he saw where I was going to be, what they the expectation was I just fell in love with it. And then I saw the program and saw the atmosphere and saw what it was about and was like, I want a shot at the college world series. This is what I want a shot at. And then it happened to work out, which was wonderful. Well, you wrap up at feather river. You, you head to Norman. We talked about, you know, how small Quincy is. How long does it take you to get your bearings at, at a school like that? Oh, a little while. It was uh, it's a big campus, and they show you around, and then they tell you you're in Dale Hall, and you're in this hall, and you're like, all right, I got 20 minutes, <clears throat> and it turns out that it's a long walk, and you're rolling into a class with 500 people, and but it's very small town in Oklahoma. It's about the college. It's about the people. It's about old school families that are there supporting the club and supporting the school. So they make you feel at home really fast, which was really cool. You touched on how important your, your coaching and the culture was when you were at feather river and, and how that helped you succeed at, at a four year. It's always this weird belting pot. Cause you've got the, the high schoolers coming in who, who just don't know anything about anything. 
you hear you've got the junior college guys. So I, I know like when I was in college, there was a lot of, oh, well, at junior college, we did this. At JUCO, we did this. At Ju-, you know, so you've, you've got those guys coming in from separate cultures and programs of how they've done. And then you've got the upperclassmen who have been doing it at OU or, you know, whatever program for for a while. Is there anything specifically that you had to adjust to where you're like, oh, well, we we do this different, whether it's strategy, team culture, how the you know how coaches know you you know run thing is there any was there any adjustment period or were you able to fit in as an upperclassman pretty seamlessly you know the hardest part was how close we were at feather river and when i rolled to ou it was you have freshmen who haven't been a part of it you have upperclassmen that have status and you know at ou they're on cards and posters and and they're known by people and they have that group. And I just, I wasn't used to that. I, I, we rolled the parties with sweatpants on and I wrote, you know, there was one of our roommates had people over and I rolled down in sweatpants and they're all in jeans and dressed up. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, like you're two doors down. Like, what do you mean? What are you, what am I doing? Like, I just wasn't used to it. I was used to this like small town. We were in such a small knit group that we, it wasn't there. You you know, I wasn't used to the big school idea and coming in, it just took, it took a little bit of time to figure out, you know, my place because I knew I could play and I knew what I did, but no one else did. And I wasn't from anywhere that anyone else understood or really respected to an extent. So you have these high school kids that turn down being drafted and have been considered, you know, whatever. And then you have guys that are looking to be drafted or going to be certain things. And you're kind of, you know, I'd happen to be drafted in the middle, but was still trying to find my place of proving myself and fitting in and not, you know, getting lost in the shuffle of worrying about all that. I guess I skipped over that. Yeah, you get popped by the Yankees coming out of junior college. Was there is there any perk to being drafted when you're not going to sign? You know, I don't know. Maybe just the status of it that you got drafted, so it just kind of puts that label on you that you're going to be a draft guy. You know, you still have to perform and you still have to be who you are. But you know, I was drafted in the 42nd round or whatever by the Yankees, which from the way I grew up and where I was, was, you know, an honor and an achievement and was, was very cool, but you know, it didn't change. I, I chose Oklahoma for the, the path that I wanted to go there and being drafted, you know, only held as much weight as, Hey, you were drafted. Yeah. All right. So was I. And you're like, all right. And then you move on, you know, your your junior college teams ended up being great teams. You guys won a lot of games. I know you suffered kind of some heartbreak at the end of the season, um, both years really, but great team there. You go into Oklahoma, you guys end up being a great team, um, host a regional, make it to the College World Series, mm-hmm. that whole thing. What are commonalities and great teams at every level? And then what are perhaps differences in those teams that, um, that you know, whether that be the level or just the, the different types of teams those might have been? You know, I've been fortunate to have, including pro ball, be on some very, very good teams that have been a lot of fun. And I think the biggest thing that I found was the players themselves hold each other accountable. 
it's not just the coaching staff holds you to a level and forces you to do things, but the players themselves gel in a way to where you can not so much call each other out, but you can call each other out and understand that you're getting called out or you're calling someone out, out of a place of you care for them, not I'm calling you out and telling you, you suck because you suck. And I don't care about, you, you know, because everyone picks up on that and then they're just like, well, whatever. But we just held each other accountable. It happened in pro ball. I was, it was a beautiful thing. I was on the same team for a long time, but like, there was no below the belt blow because we all loved each other. And there was a respect, a mutual respect and a mutual caring for each other that you were able to kind of get after somebody when you didn't like what they did. And there might be friction. There's it's, it, there needs to be friction. Otherwise people don't care, but it was like, there was friction, but there was that feeling of like, I know that we're going to figure this out not just we're going to get into it and then we're not going to like each other. That year you spent at OU, when did you know you you would lock down a starting job? Like when did you know for sure I am going to be starting? Because that's the weird thing about about baseball at a four-year school is it's so much practice and scrimmaging until it feels like the season takes forever to get there. And it's all basically vying for these nine spots, three rotation spots, and who the guys are going to be out of the bullpen. Uh, you know, probably uh... – day before opening day <laughs> there was like two weeks before the season started and i thought i almost tore my acl i was running for a ball and trying to backhand a ball out in the grass and it was a little slick and i slid and then my cleat caught and i just kind of limped around for the rest of the day and couldn't really move and got the whole like we start in two weeks how are you you know what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm not trying to live, you know, I just, I'm in Spain here. And I kind of worked through that and was, you know, fortunately it wasn't as bad as in the initial shock of what happened, but kind of rolled back. And it seemed like leading up those day or two before we got the impression of who was going to be kind of playing where we were going to be playing. And then we saw the lineup and it was like, all right, Time to go play at San Diego State. Or UC, I think it was UC, UCSD or something. I was going to ask, what was your first game like at a at a packed college stadium? In one of the, I know in the Big Twelve you get some of those big time environments, but where you know sometimes in a preseason game or, or a non conference game or stuff, what was the the first? It's a packed stadium, and this is this feels huge. You know, our first series, Tony Gwynn was coaching against us. That's pretty big. Which That's you know, big. I was you know at that moment I was like all right, what's going on now? You know, I mean, I wasn't into the, the D1 college baseball coach to really understanding the impact of like, say, Augie or facing some of these people that have had impact, especially coming from the West Coast. But like being out there and all of a sudden it's like Tony Gwynn's sitting on the batting cage talking to hitters before your VP. And he's, he's the guy coaching against you. I was like, well, all right. This is getting different, but when you get into the Big 12, especially playing Oklahoma State or Texas, you get the feeling, you know, it starts to get fun. It gets wild and it gets fun. And I mean, going into Nebraska, you never would expect that they'd pack it out. It was 30 degrees and they were packed out. Outfield was blown out. Everyone, it was everywhere. And it was, I mean, what else are you going to do in Lincoln? I don't know. <laughs> 
I swear, it was like you build it, they'll come. They were rolling out of the cornfields, just wearing you out. It was unbelievable. And it was cold. I was like, what are you people doing out here? It's freezing. I think on Sunday morning, we started the game. And by the time we ended it, it was 30. And I was at like, oh. it was like one, it was like a 10 o'clock game. And by 1 a.m. or 1 p.m., it was 30. And I was like, they, of course, they found, you know, it's the freaking Big 12. So they found some freshman that's throwing like 97 or bowling balls at you. Nobody's heard of him, but he just comes out of there throwing darts at you. And it's, you know, you're hitting freaking stones. Well, kind of on that subject, what is what was the typical AB like in junior college versus in in the, you know, when you get into Big 12 play and there's some scouting on you? Did you have to change up? what you did when you, when you advanced those levels, like was there a noticeable difference in how you were pitched or quality of pitching or however that went about? Um, you know, coming from Feather River, quality of pitching definitely was, was up. You know, we ran across several teams that we played at Feather River where you, you came across, you know, D1 pitching and stuff like that, but it wasn't every guy, you know, you'd run into a couple, a couple of their one, two guys that were going to be, playing on at the next level and and then you came across some schools where you're facing 78 miles an hour and you're like 32 to 5 after the game you're like well that was fun but you know when you roll into the big 12 and you roll into texas you know the first guy you're facing is young men and he's four to seven with three pitches and somehow locating them all and then you go to Saturday, which is Green, who's Big 12 Pitcher of the Year that year. And then Sunday's Workman. And in all three of those games, Ruffin comes in and just cleans it up. And you're like, great. We face four dudes. And, they, you know, it's all just stuff. And you're just grinding out ABs because you're just facing pure stuff. Which, you know, three, you know, Green, I don't think played pro, decided not to play pro ball, even though he got drafted, I think, in like the fifth round. And the other three are big leaguers. So I was like facing a double A staff in college and just good luck. One of the, one of the perks, you might have had to face, you know, more difficult pitching, but one of the perks in playing at a big 12 school, a school like Oklahoma, which puts as much money into athletics as anyone pretty much. Comes comes with certain perks, you know, travel, whatever that playing at Feather River doesn't have. Was there, was there a a moment like a oh wow we rich rich here? Is there was there a moment of that facilities travel? Was there any moment where you're like this is it's a lot different than junior college? Uh, yes, not just uh, plenty of them. Um, you know, walking on a tarmac to a plane, flying out just stuff in your locker and just, they just, you have, you know, several pairs. Of, I mean, you know, at Feather River, because it's a small school, we, we brought in like 60 bucks and then we got like our six practice shirts, which was a steal for six practice shirts. But then we, you know, oh, that, yeah, that's a deal. Yeah. I mean, I still have them and wear them because they're just, you know, worn in and the nostalgia of it, but, and then you go wash your own stuff and then you go to Oklahoma and like, roll in the locker room and there's like a shower in the locker room. I'm like, Oh, we can shower here. We got shower shoes and we got, you know, a, a huge locker room. There's pictures, you know, in Oklahoma is, you know, a big old school history program. So just, I mean, we worked out at the, on the side of the football field in the Switzer building, which was just like 
row after row of, you know, the setup with the weight racks and everything. And it was just this beautiful gym. And it, and they were like, yeah, the football team doesn't even work out here. You're like, what do you mean? They're like, no, no, no. They got their own. I was like, this is the nicest, one of the nicest gyms I've ever seen in my life. And you're telling them it's not even good enough for them. They're like, no, no, no. And so it just kind of put into perspective, like how much, how big this was and that going to the game gave me that vibe, but then like seeing how they treated the athletes and how they treated us. It was like, Jesus. Yeah. And then a few months later, you were in short season getting that nice dose of cold water. Yeah. A few months later, you know, I take a couple of weeks off because the world series ended Well, it ended for us. And then drove my Bronco back 27 hours with my dad and kind of hung out for a few days and get my life together, flew out, did my physical and got into Lowell and was facing a Latin kid throwing 101. Like, All right, here we go. <laughs> well, before we get into short season, I do. I mean, we got to talk about the fact that you guys do go on this run. I want to talk about the Charlottesville Super Regional because you guys, you guys host your regional, have to go to Charlotte, Charlottesville to play UVA for the Super. Um, th- this might be reading into it too much. I always think it's the mark of a team that just really has it together or is veteran leadership, whatever you want to call it, that can respond when their back's against the wall. You guys drop game one, three to two. So you're, you know, you're yeah, facing yeah, elimination, facing, facing going home. Holdson got it. It was pretty good. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that guy, I saw him on the comeback trail and he was still, he's still pumping, but bus ride back to the hotel or out to eat, whatever it is. What, what is the vibe that night? What are the conversations like that night when you guys are one loss away at on the road from going home? You know, there's kind of quiet, nervous, you know, you're, you're still, you're worried, you want it. And then, you know, there's kind of, if you guys have that false bravado of like, you know what, we're going to do this and do whatever, but we just kind of talked and I think the feeling was like, if we just take care of, you know, we kind of fought our way back as we were going, you know, we, we got into the regional and it just kind of seemed like the games that we were playing was like you started a little whatever and then you fought your way back into it. It wasn't like we were just dominating everybody and rolled into this and then got beat. It was like, what do you mean? We can get beat. Like we were grinding. We didn't have, you know, we had Zach Neal as our Friday guy who's been in the big leagues and had, you know, carved out a really nice career for himself. But it wasn't like he was sitting mid-90s. Like he was throwing, you know, 91 to 93 and pitching. And he was one of the harder throwers on our team. We weren't built like a traditional Big 12 team at that that time. And that just, I think that kind of engraved our identity of like, we're grinding. We're going to be, we're kind of the grinders. We're just going to kind of wear you out and keep playing. And then we got a couple big hits from Cody Wren. You know, he had, he had, had a really nice series after that, hitting some big homers for us. And, I think after game two, it's kind of, you see that pendulum swing of the, uh, where you're at game one's nice because you feel like you can win. But when you win game two, all of a sudden you're like, we got the momentum. All it takes is a little spark early and they're, we're going to flatline them. And we kind of felt that. Yeah. You guys blew them out in their house in game three, 11 to nothing. Yeah. It was, I think it was just one of those, like the snowball was rolling and it was like, if they scored first, they might've, settled something to try to 
you know, stop that momentum. But as soon as we went up, we were like, we got them. And then, you know, a couple homers are just daggers during those games, especially college games. Some big homers are just daggers. And then in between, so you guys, you guys headed to Omaha, but in between that week, you get drafted. Because those back, I mean, I know now they're, I guess they're doing it during the All-Star game, keep moving the draft date around. But that was at the time where drafts during the postseason. Is how much, like how much of a big deal is that when you when you're going to Omaha, like how how much mind power can you put towards the draft? And did you know that like that you were going, that you were you were gone after after Omaha? Um, you know, it was. I wasn't sure when you know you 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 enjoy the thought of the draft, and when you talk to scouts, they're like, "Well, I can see you going here," and like coming from Feather River, they're like, "I can see you going in the top ten rounds," you know. I'm going to talk to my people. So you get all excited about that. And then 42nd round comes around. You're like, all right, well, it's pretty far from top 10, but you know, I got drafted and I mean, that was something I never thought. And we were practicing when the draft was going on. Um, and someone came out and was like, Blackie. And I was like, what? And they were like, you just went in the, in the 12th round to the giants, you know? And part of me was like, like I grew up a Giants fan and part of me was like, really? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, unbelievable. Like my childhood team, I'm like, are you kidding me? And I was talking to a Giant scout at the time. He sat down and I went through, you know, the interview process with him. And I was like, oh. And then they then like go out for like an inning of whatever game we're playing, come back in. And they're like, no, man, it wasn't, it wasn't the 12th to the Giants. It was, it was the the 13th to the Marlins. And I was like, oh, I'm like, all right, well, cool. You know, and like part of me is like, oh, all right. And then like I go back out and come back in and they're like, no, no, no. It was the 14th to the Giants. And I was like, all right, what is it, guys? I'm like, did I even get drafted? And, you know, like I started messing around with them. And they're like, no, 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 it's the 14th to the Marlins. We figured it out. And at that time, I, you know, I started questioning it because there was another Dan Black a kid out of Purdue who I actually ended up playing spring training with at the Marlins and my sophomore year in whatever round Dan Black pops up and I, you know, and like my heart drops and I'm like, Oh my God, like this just happened. I'm watching the computer and texts start flying in. And then I look at it and it's like Purdue first baseman, 234 pounds. And I was like, yeah, that's not me. You know, how did your teammates keep messing this up though? Like I, it wasn't, I don't know. I mean, I the draft that, that round wasn't televised, but like, it's not 1979. Like it's on the computer. Well, I think because we were out at the field that like our equipment guy was kind of running and saying something and coming back. So there was miscommunication because nobody like was sitting with their phone or sitting on anything. We were just practicing. We're getting ready for the world series. And I don't know how it got mixed up three times, but at some point it's like, I don't even believe anybody here. Like, I don't even, I'm like, did I even get drafted? Like, you know, and I was still, I was, you know, I enjoyed the thought. It was, that was something, you know, obviously that I was considering, but you still had, you know, I was, I wanted to win the world series. That's what I was there for. And that's what we were there for. We were practicing. So like it was, it was great, but it was like, I can't even think about this until after 
we accomplish what we're trying to do here. Well, you guys head in and it's the last year at Rosenblatt and like walk me through for anyone who didn't, I fortunately, like I got the chance to go in 2008. In, incredible. Um, what was, you know, the, the atmosphere, what, what was different about that park and that those, those games you got to play there than any, than, than anything you had played up to that point or ever really, you know, just the fact that you've watched it on TV for so long, it was like watching a big league game. You know, you've always watched these games when they come and it's these cool moments. And then you're actually, all of a sudden you're on that field and looking at it from this completely different perspective and understanding like how it is on ESPN. You know, I mean, you're on ESPN and you're doing all this stuff and walking around and people know your name. You know, it's like the first moment outside of maybe, you know, your college town or your JUCO or a couple people that like random people are coming up and know who you are. And they have this big festival fair outside of the stadium where people can buy all the memorabilia or bats or whatever. And people are just trying to give you stuff. Like they're excited you're there. And you're like, I remember all these NCAA protocols. Like we can't take free stuff. Like, I don't know what to do here. And some guys are like, yeah, this is awesome. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, is this a trap or like somebody's coming up saying, Hey Danny, how you doing? I have no idea where you're from. He's from like Iowa or something. And he's like, Hey, yeah, I have these shirts. Like here, take a shirt. It'd be my, and you know, I'm like, I don't know if I can take this. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I'm like, I'm just enjoying this. But it was very surreal. It was very surreal because you're walking around and you're trying to figure out, you know, that this is like all going on, but you're like, there's, this doesn't feel like, I don't know where, how this coexists with the baseball game itself. Like there's just so much going on and this is so cool and I'm embracing this moment. But like, I, you know, when you get on the field, you're like, all right, you need to lock it in now. I was going to say when you, when you college world series games, is there a tangible difference? Cause I guess the cliche thing would be, you know, Oh, lock it in, in between the lines. It's all the same. Is there, is that really the case or is there actually a tangible difference where you're consciously aware the whole time? Like, Oh, this is a bigger deal than anything I've done. Oh no. Yeah. It's bigger. You know, I mean, it's just, it's like, first time walking around a big league stadium or just this, this is, you know, like you build these moments up that you've had as a kid and that you've seen in your life as a sports fan or as a baseball fan. And then when you're actually there, the, sur- the surreal feeling about just looking around and embrace it, you know, and people are all over it. I mean, they're cheering for good at the world series. It's like something good happens on either side. You're not in your home thing or you can embrace like it's like someone cheers and it just explodes. It was really cool, but it was, you know, you had to like, you had to embrace it. Otherwise it just kind of wanted to like lock you up. You know, you had to either embrace it, but you can't clear it. It was one of those ones where you can't just go, Oh, I'm playing again. Let me get out. Let me get this out of my head. I'm going to go play baseball. Like you had to embrace that this is happening you know, I'm here, we're here, except that we're here and what's going to go on and then go play baseball. Does getting that far make the last loss hurt more or less? Like if you guys would have gotten tripped up in regionals, do you think it hurts more or less than you guys, you win a game in Omaha, drop to head home? I don't know. It depends on how many years after you look at it. You know, you lose in the regionals, you're upset because you're like, come on, we never did what we should have done. And 
you know, making it to the World Series kind of makes the fruition of like my whole vision for why I chose Oklahoma and the beauty of it and what I wanted to achieve in my career and what I wanted to do. Very cool. Losing in the World Series was awful. I mean, I was, you know, in tears in the locker room and just. And a tough loss at that. Just like a Feather River, just like whatever, you know, I mean, you just. The size of all of it creeps up on you. How much work the family you've created, the people you've fought with, how far you've gotten and to come up short. You know, looking back, it's the beauty of it. The fact that you can hold those emotions and that you have that much love and respect for what's been going on is the beauty of it, that it actually affects you that way. But it's also the horror of the moment when it happens, you know? Well, so you guys, you guys wrap, you head home, you sign with the Marlins. What, what at that time did you think your path to the show was like, how much expectation did you have for yourself in pro ball versus now you have years of foresight, you know, you hindsight 2020 you're coaching now. So you're seeing young ball players. What, if you look at yourself from that lens and then you think about where you were at that time, what did you think your path to the show was versus with that guy and that, that kind of talent before injuries, before anything, what, what do you think it was? You know, it was still kind of surreal because I went from almost not playing at a high school to going to this junior college to all of a sudden having this role start to happen where I wasn't just a Juco guy. All of a sudden I was playing D one and then I was in the world series and then I was playing in pro ball. And it wasn't like this feeling like, some players just, you know, this is where I'm going to be and this is how I want to get, to, like, I don't know, they have this confidence about how it was. And I was just like, I'm just going to go play pro ball and I'm going to do what I know and that's try to go win ball games, you know, get better and do whatever. But, like, I'm just going to go play baseball and try to win. And then as I kind of progressed, short season was fine. We had a decent year. I, You know, our, our team was pretty good. We made the playoffs and that was, like, kind of the outskirts of the team that we became and then went to spring training the next year, worked out with the high A team all spring. Didn't know why, but just had a really good spring. And Ron Hassey was our manager of the high A team. And he kind of called me over one day and was like, Hey, he hadn't said like three words to me the whole spring. And I was like, I don't know if this guy likes me or not. Like, I don't know. It's my first spring training. I'm just trying to play and nobody's telling me anything except for I'm just playing. And he's just like, hey, I appreciate everything. You've been great. I wish I could have you. And I'm like, all right. And then I got called in and I was told I was going to go back to Greensboro because they wanted me to be a part of this team we're with. You know, they loved what I did. They said I would have made the team, but they wanted me a part of this group, which thankfully happened because I was a part of, I was had the ability to be a part of this amazing group that climbed its way through the minor leagues and did some special stuff. Um, but it seemed like high A after my high A season, I had a good year before I tore some ligaments in my wrist. And then the next year coming in got a big league camp invite. And that's kind of when my eyes kind of opened up to like, I'm not just, grinding minor league years out and make, you know, just keep moving levels and see like all of a sudden it was like you're in big league camp and you're like, Oh, that that's actually an option. 
like I wanted to make the big leagues and that's always the dream, but like, it didn't seem real until I was in big league camp. And also I was like, all right, like now I'm amongst these, now I'm amongst the real boys. With the kind of player you were um, getting out, getting away from college, you were in the last year of the uh, trampoline bats. Um, Power wasn't a huge part of your game as a professional. Um, You're, you have one big outing report mentioned you got some doubles pop, but speed's a big part of your game. When speed is a component of your game, does that affect how you approach your ABs? If you're a guy who, you know, can leg out a ground ball, can drop down bunts, does that, do you change anything? Basically, do your speed being a component, does it change how you approach your ABs or do you worry about the AB in itself and then worry about the running afterwards? It changes your ABs. And if you're, you know, as a coach now and teaching it, I really wish that I could have, you start seeing it from the other side of what everyone's been trying to tell you, you know, it's kind of the the beauty and the curse of coaching is all of a sudden everything people have been telling you, all of a sudden you find yourself start telling people and you're like, well, here's the irony of this, you know, I sat here battling, you know, and as a player, you just, you get so caught that like this moment is the most important. You know, this moment is life or death moment every day or every whatever. And this is, you know, because your career's on the line. And as a coach, you start seeing like the vision for the player, the, the timeline. And and you're on that side of the room and you're like, all right, like we want you to stay with this approach because we know on the timeline it's going to. But you can't see that as a player. You have blinders on. You can only see so far And for a speed player. If I could, you know, when I was really good, I was staying up the middle and staying in the gaps. And I had my hands worked. So if I just didn't try to do too much, then my ability, you know, I allowed myself to play the way that my talents and my abilities were best suited. And, you know, we'd all get excited and, you know, start, you know, feeling manly and trying to pull homers. I was in Greensboro and it's a short porch and you watch people flip it out and balls are just flying everywhere. And you're like, I can do that too. And then you find yourself in this two for 20 slump because you're just rolling balls over and chasing everything under the sun. And you're like, all right, this isn't working. But when I was best and especially looking back, I was staying with the approach of using the middle of the field, splitting gaps you know, the accidents of homers and, you know, and just all of that happened and then using my speed. And realistically, I should have bought it more. But I did buy it on a cake, you know, when I could and try to do it. But looking back, it's like that was a part of my game. Scoring runs was more of a value to me than driving them in because I was in the top of the order. And that's I had more opportunities to do that. Now that you're you're someone like you said you're coaching you're someone who's entrusted with getting guys ready for pro ball those first couple of years especially your first year in, in full season in Greensboro your second season uh, majority of that with, with Jupiter and what was then High A what surprises you out there like what's something you you just you weren't prepared for couldn't maybe could have prepped for or is there anything that it's just like this is t- a tough part about professional baseball and there's no way to prepare for it just the the length of it you know you hear this saying of like let the length of the season help you not hurt you and that's you know approach based of like stick with something and the length of it will help because you're doing the right things but 
it was just long. It was every day. It was just a grind that you just learning how to prepare your body and learning how to handle the every day of the schedule and that the fact that you're every day in May, you're every day in April, you're every day in June, you're every day in July, you're, and then August rolls around and you're like, I'm hanging. Like, and you're like, well, you know, just the figuring out how to survive the length of the season because we were fortunate to win a championship that year in Greensboro. And we were running on straight adrenaline and willpower rolling through this playoffs because we hit this special run at the end and it was just like, well, we can't lose. So we're not going to lose. And it became the running joke, but it just kind of played out that way. But we were all like hanging by the end of it. We had to go to instructs afterwards and all of us were like, come on. We're like, we can't do this. You've also got to learn how to live. It's a different way of travel, especially not to, not to paint you, D one OU boys with a, with a brush, but you had it, had it pretty good. And you, which you were just talking about. So learning probably pulling a little bit from your junior college days of like how to, you know, how best way to travel, best way to, to live life on a bus, best way to live life in a, you know, not the hotels that you guys were staying at at Oklahoma. How much, what's the learning curve like with learning the off field of, of being a minor league baseball player? I don't know. We just embraced the straight animal house degenerate lifestyle that we were in. We had seven dudes in a, a three bedroom apartment in Greensboro. <laughs> and I mean, we're talking like, I mean, we, and we had some dudes in our apartment. I mean, I was sharing a room with, you know, or sharing an apartment with Christian Yelich, JT Romuto. I mean, they were our roommates. They were just high school kids that were in a room and they were in our apartment. And, you know, buddies of mine at the time, but I mean, we had air mattresses on the ground. Somebody's girlfriend would come in and they would get the one room that, so that they could be, you know, with their girlfriend and have some kind of privacy. And the rest of us were just out in the living room, yard sailed all over the place, stacking into a car and rolling to the field every day. It was, it was beautiful though. You know, it's like, it built like it kind of, you know, I mean, it's, you look at it and you're like, yeah, that's brutal. But it was kind of, you know, a part of the weed now process. It was the beauty of we built relationships with each other because we were going through it together. And it started kind of that foundation, you know, stuff like that was a foundation for why we consider ourselves, you know, where we were getting. I'm interested in, so you're playing with like with Yelich, Romuto, you do your, um, you know, your third year in pro ball, you go to the fall league on your fall league team or you're, 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 your other infielders, you got Marcus Semien, Corey Seager, Colin Moran, Micah Johnson, guys who play in the big leagues. There was, and I'm pulling from an interview I was listening to the other day. It was JJ Reddick talking about, and he was talking about the, um, the, I don't know if you ever saw the video when Brian Scalabrini, a guy at a, like a lifetime fitness or whatever, challenged him and Scalabrini just like dusted the guy, like beat him 11 to nothing and told him I'm closer to LeBron James than you are to me told the, the guy he played. <laughs> And I, I'm curious, like, you're all professionals. Every, you know, everyone is a professional. What's, how big is the gap, really? Like, you're a guy who played and got to AAA. You're playing in the Fall League. Corey Seager's a guy who has 
hundreds of millions of dollars now. He's now doing quite well for himself. Yeah, he he's doing he's doing okay. So is Simeon, so is Buxton, so are all these guys. Yeah, they're doing great. Probably live th- those guys probably live in a decent house. I would say, um, you know, nice maybe gated community. A couple of them. His Uber Eats is, looks a little different than mine. Yeah. Yeah. How big? How big is the gap? What's the? How big is the difference? You know, in in this guy, you know, even like the guys who who play and stay, the guys who get six. You know, there's there's some guys that there's a clear difference. Um, like Yelich, he was goofy and unorthodox, and a lot of it wasn't there. But when you put the bat in his hands, it was like poetry in motion, like. He was like the guy that like you put a bat in his hands and he was on this earth doing what he should be doing. And from first year I met him to whatever, like he just had that ability and the feel and unbelievable eye at the plate and just could put that together consistently better than anybody. He's still, you know, is the best hitter I've come across playing against with that I saw coming through the minor leagues. And and you see guys that just stand out. You hear the names and you hear certain names, but some guys really stand out. And from them, like, they're just in their own. It's kind of like, a, when are they going to put it all together and then they'll just see you later? Or it's a matter of just they just need a little time to saturate themselves in the game and then they're on their way. Uh, but for the rest of us, I think it's just consistency. I think there's some luck. I think there's some whatever, but I also believe luck is like when preparation meets opportunity. So some guys, you know, could be prepared and never get the opportunity. And you might see some college guys that could have had a really good career, maybe made it that never got a shot. But the guys that seem to keep grinding out level after level are the guys that mentally are ready for the, the, the length and the battle and they just they find consistency in the game whether they consistently just do things better over time they figure out how to consistently get in a better spot to hit consistently making the same move i mean if you watch miguel cabrera the dudes had the same move on hitting the same short compact move for like 50 years since you (laughs) You know, I mean, for like he's been playing the game forever. It's the same move. Like he had it as a kid. He's had the ability to hold it. And it's a beautiful thing, but it's like it's that special stuff that like he's had and can do. And that's what the rest of us struggle to do at times. You mentioned luck, though. You you put together a, a great season in high A when you're your age appropriate for the league. Um, you know, you make it up to double A towards the end of that, and then you tear some ligaments in your wrist. And just looking at the numbers, you're you're never even close to the same. That doesn't seem like it's a coincidence. Is that a bad? Is that a bad break? Like there are injuries. You know, you break a finger, it's a bone. It heals. Is is the wrist something that played into the rest of your career? Maybe even just like developing bad habits or getting out of what was making you a good hitter in high A. Uh, you know, coming back, it took, a, you know, but I, I never had surgery, but what I was told was if you have surgery, it's going to be the same as if you don't. And part of it, they were like, I don't know if you have 10 more swings or if you have a million doctors, like, I can't really tell you that. 
you know, which not really what you want to hear, but it took me a while to get it loose the first year. And that's not an excuse. Um, you know, I think for me, I just try to do too much. Didn't trust, you know, and there's a couple of things that I had was able to get away with at the lower levels that I was told by hitting coaches and like, I just couldn't consistently clean it up. You know, I'd have little spurts where I'd hit 350 for a month and a half and then cool off and not, you know, I couldn't make the peaks in the valleys level off at the upper levels. What are the things you could get away with that, that upper level pitchers could get to? I was kind of a rush guy where I kind of lunged at the, the pitcher and in the lower levels, they couldn't locate as well, you know, it was a little bit more hit or miss. So I get myself into some more hitters counts, which would help me with fastballs. I could always hit the fastball, but when you get a little lungy and they start can locate breaking balls and, and start throwing them for strikes and you have to respect the back and forth, then they can start taking advantage of what you're doing in the lower levels. You know, if I controlled it, I was okay. But if I wasn't, they could take advantage. And then it starts spiraling as a hitter. You start finding yourself out in front of off speed and late on fastballs. And you're like, well, this is a weird, I don't know what to do here. It's a bad combo. That's a rough combo to be in. But yeah, I just, it, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't consistently see the full picture of what, you know, why I needed to really emphasize working on that because I got away with it for so long. When you get into the upper levels and you're, I mean, you're, you're putting up tough stats The your, your, your season and stat lines aren't what you want. Do you day to day? Is it, I'm one is the focus. I'm one. I'm just one adjustment away. Or is it more maybe, you know, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Like how do you, what's, what's the balance there? Do you, do you still show up to the ballpark every day thinking today's the day or um, does, do things get bleak? I mean, it's miserable. You know, nobody wants to struggle and we all have moments where we do. And it's definitely not a feeling that I enjoyed being a part of, but I think the hardest part is to self-evaluate yourself. That's the part that I wasn't very good at as far as hitting and to understand what's going on and spend the time to just, you know, kind of check yourself and be like, this doesn't work. Like get over yourself that you're just going to will your way out of it. You know, hitting, you can't try harder and hit and you'd be better. It's not really, you know, hitting is not the one thing where it's just like, well, just try harder and you'll be better. Like that don't work. So the biggest part and the hardest thing it's just like self-evaluating that you need to make changes and you need to respect that what you're doing isn't working. And we all go, it's not working, whatever's not working, but like really evaluating yourself and understanding that it's not working, but it might take me 10 days to get out of this. So I need to simplify my approach. I just need to stay with this approach and be able to stay with it, failure or not. And as a hitter, it's really hard to like keep an approach fail for like two, three games with it and believe that it's going to be like the savior that's going to pull you out of it. Even though you've had three weeks of being terrible, those three days all of a sudden feel like three more weeks. 
at what point did you, when did you first consider what life after playing would be like? Uh, you know, I was in spring training and actually having a decent little spring playing with the group and got called over by our, our farm director and was like, Hey, you know, right now we have you slotted. You're, I don't know, in AAA, like you're either slotted with the spot or if a couple guys take their, their, their options and their ends, then you might be pushed out. But, you know, like there's a high respect for you in this clubhouse and in the front office and everywhere. And, you know, we just want to let you know, what would you think about being a coach? And I was like, well, I don't know. It's like, can I think about it? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is like with two weeks left in spring. So I spend the next two weeks having several beers at night, talking to the family, you know, battling the, the decision because I love the game. And part of it was like, you know, if I coach, like I can stay in this, you know, I hopefully can stay in this game for a lot longer than if I played. But I also love this game and know that I can play it at a level and think that I, you know, and it was back and forth and rolled in like the last couple of days of spring training. Donnie Kelly was actually the linchpin of it. He didn't make the big club, took his out. So then I was on the AAA team. And then on like the 25th hour, decided he was going to come back. And then well, I'm sitting next to him in Miami. We're playing a game against the Yankees or something in Miami with like a day left. He looks over, he's like, hey, where are you going to be this year? And I just kind of looked over and I was like, coaching. And he goes, what? And I go, yeah. He goes, well, what happened? I go, you did. <laughs> and, you know, Donnie's really cool. And he just goes, he start. he kind of laughs. He's like, oh, sorry, man. I was like, yeah, well, you know. And, like, I decided, you know, they brought it back up again when it had happened. And I was like, you know, I think I'll go into coaching. I love this game. You know, I think that it's something I'd be good at and – and it was a choice I made. You know, the question is always like, you gave up playing. And it wasn't that I didn't think that I could keep playing. You know, honestly, I might have been able to play in the big leagues. You know, I had the tools to be able to do it. I just needed the consistency. And I could have done that as I got older, more ABs. I don't know. But I made the choice and I'm okay with it to stay in the game as far as what's what surprised you about coaching? You know, the battle between coming from the upper levels and going to the lower levels and assuming guys know things and they don't or they do and they seem like they don't you know i mean it's just kind of that you roll back over and the guys ask questions and you're like what do you why would you even ask that you know and to you it's like so clear because you've just been playing at such a level and you know, the game, I understood the game. So it just, it, you know, at first I had, I had to check myself and be like, all right, you're, you're teaching. Like, you know, and people kept going, don't assume they know. And I'm like, come on, they have to know. And they're like, don't assume they know anything. And it's a disservice to the players because they actually are smart and they understand a lot. And in the moment they might not answer right, but they also at times don't know. And you just don't even like think about telling them certain things because you just assume they 
they would put it together. And then they ask you a question. You're like, all right, I'm trying to teach D, E, and F right now. And you just asked a question that makes me let you know that we got to go back to A. Like we need to solidify the ABCs of this situation or this whatever before I can even, you know, I'm talking to you and you're looking at me weird and I, I'm picking it up that I'm a little too far, you know, I'm, I'm a little too advanced for where you're at in your career. Uh, that was the weirdest part. Coaches are really kind of a summation of some nation of who, where they've been, who they played for programs they've been in levels they've been at whatever and you're you're coaching with the professionals now but i'm curious it you know taking in all of your experiences are there direct things that you learned in junior college from your junior college coach who i know you think very highly of are there things that from that period of your life that are useful now as you know a guy in his 30s coaching professional baseball players are the things that you can directly attribute as to this shapes my philosophy as a coach and how I, how I approach and work with players. It was, you know, the patience and the ability to get the grind out of, out of us, you know, bomber and um, Jason gay and Mac and Vollmer and like the staff that we had just, they were able to inst like instill the feeling that like this grind and this work and this effort that we were giving was going somewhere. And I remember sitting and coming into the office and going, what do I got to do? You know, Q, as you know, Q and I are every day like buddies off the field, but it's a straight competition on the field every day to see like, and you know, and I come in, I'm like, well, what do I got to do? Like, what do I got to do to win this job? What do I got to do to be better? And he's in bomber, you know, smiles and goes, well, yeah, Q was in here yesterday asking. And I'm like, damn it. You know, like, you know, and then I, I'm all frustrated about it that like he beat me, you know, but it was just like this grind of, but it was a fun grind. It was like, you're getting after it every day. You're competing every day. It's, I mean, that's the household that I kind of grew up in was everything was a game and you wanted to win games. My dad, my sister, my mom, they're all, we're all in sports and that just kind of fueled. But the feeling of that also with the fact that like they cared about you, you know, ultimately this is all about people as much as we get caught up in our teams and our whatever, like these are just kids people with families, you know, going back to my first time with Bomber when he was telling me that he wanted me, like I'm sitting there with his kids climbing over me and I'm playing with his kids and I rolled into Feather River and I was babysitting his kids at sometimes and like, like we're, it's like a family. And so I, you know, I try to instill that feeling that, that he gave me with like the guys because they have families and they're going through stuff. I mean, like I, you know, like we all have, you know, I'm not the only one that has gone through experiences. They've had their own experiences. They've, I mean, shoot, all these kids have gone through stuff that we've never understood with the COVID crisis. You know, all these college kids have had that second year and battling all the freshmen, all these kids have gone through stuff that we never have. We never had to worry about that. We had a clear college, like, this is what you got. This is your time you have. This is, how it's going to be not like 
you got to go through protocols. You can't play this year, but we're going to give you a year, but there's more coming. And, you know, the perspective of understanding that their experiences or even this travel ball lifestyle that we like picking on, you know, the older generation, we love picking on it, but they put a lot of work in that life. You know, they've put a lot of time and effort with these people that gurus, whatever, you know, I don't care who it is, but like, you know, it's not all of them are just, you know, full of it and don't know. Like there's a lot of people who have cared about these kids and believe that it is. And these kids have put their whole life into trying to be good in that realm. So it's not fair of them to for have them come to us and be like, well, you're wrong. Like, even though we can understand because we've been at upper levels and our experience tells us like this might not work. It's, it's a hard line to tell a kid like what you've been doing is, isn't good or isn't going to work or, you know, when they've had success their whole life, you know, like your, your first message is that won't play to a kid who's got drafted and paid by a professional club because they can play. It's like, you know, there's a disconnect there that you have to avoid, even though if you know, which as a coach now, you know, from the player, you never see it. And as a coach, you all of a sudden you start to see it. And it's like finding a way to get through to them without being that, you know, blunt about something that's not going to help your relationship with them. It's not going to help their future, their career. It's not going to help them with anything. Just being blunt saying that's not going to work. You know, that's not fair to them because of all the work they've put into it. Um, trying to instill that. Well, if you could, uh, if you could put on your coaching hat and give a pep talk to freshly drafted 21 year old Danny Black, what would that pep talk look like? Don't forget about why you're doing it. You know, this is still a game. It is your job, but it is still a game. It's fun. You're going to go through the full gauntlet. But trust that the people working with you are here to help. I always did trust them, but like really trust. You know, no coach is trying to make you worse. But trust that and and avoid the noise. We all have noise in our life. And just clear out the noise, clear out the expectations that others put on you and just Play the game for why you've always been playing it. Quick rapid fire for you, then I'll let you get out of here. What do you got? Favorite minor league ballpark. Favorite minor league ballpark. Oof. I did like Pensacola. Um, when that was new and that was a beautiful one. Um, Asheville was cool for the nostalgia because you watch the Bull Durham and whatever. And it's a small little band box. It's fun to hit in. Best pitcher you ever faced. Oof. I mean, as far as when I faced them or when they did, I mean, Garrett Cole and Talion, and those dudes are pretty good ones. I would say Seagrist for the Cardinals was the one that I was highly uncomfortable. He's just a lefty throwing darts and bullets from behind me, and it was just a very uncomfortable at bat. I mean, you know, like I was far more comfortable facing Jose Fernandez in spring training than I was facing Seagrist. Interesting. Man, that guy was something else 
Um, I, I see, I saw from your now very inactive Twitter account, but you are a, you're a grill guy. I am also a grill guy. I love, love grilling, love my smoker like a, like a child. What is the go-to? What's your go-to on the griller, griller, the smoker? I would have to say, um, so I got the, uh, the you know, an egg version mm-hmm. of the egg. And I would say my go-to are thighs, chicken thighs. A lot of flavor. Yeah. I love steak, chicken thighs. Um, we do some ribs. We do man candy, which is like the little bacon wrapped jalapenos with the cream cheese in there. And when we have a party, the brisket is, is a winner. But yes, Always. my Twitter account, all my social media is, is very quiet. I, I do not believe in sharing to the world because it scares me. Well, one of your last tweets was a picture of the the frame that you built for your grill. It's a nice, like, nice built-in. It's a great setup you you have there. I was very proud of that because you know I should have been. It was not a you know I'm not that well versed. My wife's dad is huge. He's a wonderful builder, architect, jack of all trades, and I was kind of there with a router and a a little six inch circle saw and just had the COVID time season wasn't going on. And when, when the girl would go down for a nap, I started working on this thing and was able to put it together and was, was quite proud of myself, how it came out. So that was, you know, that's a special, that holds a little special spot on top of the fact that I like grilling every single night of my life. So like I get oh, yeah. at it every day and roll it out and it still makes me happy. Yeah, no, it looks, looks, uh, looks wonderful. Um, favorite dog pile. Feather River. A specific one, because I, I when when I played with all your teammates, when once they got to my school, they always rubbed it. How many dog pilots you guys had? I think winning the regionals or freshman year, winning the league, it might have been the league. There's one that made the picture where we think Q is about four feet above the pile or whatever, but it was it was one of those where it just was organic. It was like our first one. It was kind of sloppy, but it was just wild. And it was a really cool feeling because it was just everyone knew what they wanted to do and did that. And then after that, we, you know, this not to be like cocky, but like we started game planning. Like, all right, we don't want to be on the bottom of the pile. So you and I are going to go like chest pump, let that thing form. And then we're going to do like our flying squirrel on top of it. And, but the first one was just, Nobody thought about anything. The pile went over and bodies were flying. And it was, it was cool. It was a really cool feeling. Last one I got, everyone gets this. Do you have a nightmare bus ride story from the minor leagues? Just one. Um, I mean, you, you can, you can rip off as many as you want. I, I've done one episode where I just did a super cut of, of people telling the stories and eventually I will do another one. I mean, outside of the AC breaking, so Zuna got called up. We had no AC driving to Jackson, Tennessee, so it's 15 hours, no AC. Um, everyone's shirtless in sliders, and there's a picture that's taken of everyone just struggling. And, of course, this is Ozuna's debut, so he gets a hit. And they're, like, they're like, oh, here's from Jacksonville AA. Here's what he – and they show the picture, and we got a – our manager got a call from the owner saying like that can't happen so that was just long and miserable but we've had a few where 
you know, the wheel on our trailer behind the bus flew off, jumped a couple lanes and smoked a car on the other side <laughs> that we had to pull over. Um, we've had some absolute beauty, beautiful ones on top of it, but the bus breaking down because the AC is not working or smoke starting to roll into the middle of the bus. We got to pull over and sit on the side of the road for three hours before a game. Those are always just awful. Jacksonville, double A Jacksonville was long. Those, those bus trips were just brutal. There's nothing like riding the bus in the minor leagues. Danny Black, that is all I've got for you. Thank you so much for joining from Fiend onto the Farm. No, I appreciate you having me. It's been a pleasure. Of course. And that's it for today's episode from Phenom to the Farm. Huge thanks to Danny Black for stopping by telling his career story. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out baseballamerica.com for all amateur baseball and prospect news. We'll catch you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.